There are many ways to travel around the world, but what is so specifically glorious about the road trip? The romance of hitting the wide open road has sparked the imaginations of writers and directors since the dawn of the highway. The journey might take longer than on a plane or in a train, but in your car, restrictions are lifted. You can take wrong turns that turn out to be right turns, meet weird and wonderful people, and get up close and personal with your surroundings. You might have a destination in mind, or maybe you just want to see where the ride takes you. Maybe an unexpected twist in the road or the story will lead you to places you'd never have otherwise explored. You're listening to The Road Ahead in association with Audi. In each episode, we'll be exploring different paths around the world across four different continents. This week, we're in California. The route, we're starting in San Francisco, heading over the Golden Gate Bridge and up Route 1, otherwise known as the Shoreline Highway. Expect grand views, pit stops in tiny towns, and some excellent oysters. What a beautiful day. Before we hit the road, let's stretch our legs in San Francisco. The city is famous for its hilly topography, foggy mornings, and that massive red bridge, of course. You want to know, don't you, that the Golden Gate's paint color is called International Orange. Helps you not to hit it in all that fog. Something else we learn about this city is the people. San Franciscans are early birds. The city is up and moving with the sunrise, and this is why so many folks we meet on the way do so many things. Writers are also climbers. Tech specialists paint. Art dealers make furniture. The San Francisco way of life is both inspired by the city's position in close proximity to so much nature and the cost of it too. This isn't a cheap place to live, so sometimes a side hustle is part of the course. Let's meet the art dealer Jessica Silverman, whose gallery is in the central neighborhood of Tenderloin, which hasn't always had the best reputation, but is slowly being resuscitated by businesses such as hers. Silverman tells us about this San Franciscan way of life and what it's been like to build up her art empire. Hi. Hi, how are you guys? Very well, how are you? Jessica, nice to meet you. Yes. Yeah, nice to meet you. Come on in. How's it going? Well, I believe like when you're in a city, you have to be a good citizen. So whatever that means for someone, it varies. When I first opened, I was making a conscious effort to bring in European artists and artists outside of the Bay Area to the gallery, to San Francisco, essentially, to show different perspectives, to really differentiate what we were doing. And over the years, we've slowly started to represent more Bay Area artists, and that's been like a huge awakening for the gallery, for those artists, for the European artists. And I love this kind of dialogue between artists who aren't based here and artists who are. And what you get to understand being here is that San Francisco really supports its own. So if I am their own, and then I'm showing an artist from here, it's just like kind of double, doubly supporting kind of feeling. And I find that our artists who live here also have a great sense of desire to be part of that community. So with Woody, who we're showing now, he's speaking at Mill soon. He's going to UC Davis. He's going to different kind of local art schools upon invitation, of course, not just roguely showing up, <laughs> to give talks about his work. He's very close with the head of the ceramic department at CCA, where he graduated from. He offers to go back and kind of do studio visits, do sessions with the students there, or do like he did a stand-up comedy or poetry reading thing recently. And so 
that's his way of kind of being part of the community. And on the other side, an artist like Luke Butler, who we represent, teaches at SFAI, as does Davina Simo. Tammy Ray Carland is the provost at CCA, so she's like has a major role. And so they're artists first and foremost, and then they're also kind of community members, which I think is really important. And so that plays into how I see my role here, which is not only being a dealer and representing artists, but being on the board of the Tenderloin Museum, being on the Arts Commission, which is a very privileged position. It's a city-appointed position, so it's a civil servant sort of mm-hmm. thing, and we get to choose all the art that goes all around the city. We talked about this multidisciplinary yeah. thing, and people have a lot of different, whether they're an artist, pure and simple, mm-hmm. or, they, or they lecture and they do all these other things. Whatever they are, they're a writer, they, they lecture, and they do all these other things as well. What is that about San Francisco? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's quite an early... It might be a banal thing to talk about the, t- the simple clock. Mm-hmm. It feels like people get up early here. It's California, very Californian in that sense. Yeah. It feels like you can actually do two jobs in a day at least yeah. and then go out and meet people in the evening. Mm-hmm. What is it? Because you're not San Francisco born and bred, so you've got the kind of the interest of the outsider. You can notice things that people who've been here forever maybe don't notice about the city. Right. Can you define that? I mean, maybe part of it is the seven by seven radius of San Francisco, the actual physicality of all the traffic's gotten quite bad. In theory, one can get from one side of the city to the other very quickly, and so it allows for you to do a lot in one day. I think it's also a city of culture. So um, there's this desire to see the opera, go to performances, go to a lecture, run over to City Lights, buy a book, you know, sit through um, a discussion. There's so there are so many offerings here to be part of. One instance was this idea of the seven by seven radius, yeah. it just being small. And then, I mean, part of it actually could relate to the fact that it's expensive to live here. Um, so one actually feels like they have to spread themselves across disciplines. Ben, for instance, works full time for me. He also has a really wonderful furniture practice. You know, I think there's passions for things and then there's necessities for others and hopefully you enjoy your job and also that allows you to do the thing on the side or in the times between that maybe isn't the full-time thing but finds this balance of passion. I'm lucky that my job is so fragmented in that like I sell, I go to artist studios, I go to fairs, I curate shows here and elsewhere that I don't even have time for another thing to be honest but there's so much within my one thing that I don't feel like I'm missing out on something that I'm like unbelievably passionate about although I always wanted to be a dog walker part-time because I love dogs (laughs) and that sounds really relaxing to just take them to the beach. We meet all sorts of people in San Francisco who do all sorts of weird and wonderful things. One of these is Val Vale. Vale was a member of Blue Cheer, the 1960s band credited with pioneering heavy metal. He was also friends with many of the beat poets and the novelist J.G. Ballard. He's also an artist and a writer interested in counterculture, something in fact that San Francisco specialised in for two decades or more and founded a publication called Research. We chanced upon him through a friend and wound up at his house. We're doing a series of road trips. Now, road trips are kind of like they're an accessible dream, right? All you need is an oil check and gas and time. 
What do, you, what do you think about the idea of road trips? Are they kind of an American cliche? Is there life in the road trip? They're my favorite form of, of movie making. I love that. You know, you're in a car or on a cable car or on a bicycle and, you know, you're watching this film and it's kind of amazing. It's amazing watching the world unfold before you at and a, steady, the, a steady time, right? Yeah, in real time. And it's also an instant historical record. Like, you know, 30 years from now, those cars won't even be around a bunch of them. They'll look quaint. Like, they don't make What's, what's, they don't make cars like that anymore, you know? And, and the buildings will have changed. Everything will have changed. So I think it's our lives are instant history. Anyway, it's important to have as accurate and comprehensive a picture as you can any given day, you know, that you're experiencing life like now. And in terms of the city that's your home, how have you changed it and it's changed you? Are you, are you have you always been on friendly terms with San Francisco? I would. I don't know if I'd call it friendly. I mean, it's your mother. Your city is your matrix. Your, if you're lucky enough to be in a gorgeous city like this with amazing weather all year round, we don't have to do any sh- shoveling snow. We don't have to be putting on Lawrence of Arabia clothing in the summertime. With this climate, you can work hard every day. It's wonderful. It seems like you've, you've done so many things. You've done things that was something that looks like you took a left foot turn in the road, then a right turn, and you carried straight on, then you reversed a little. Is there something about San Francisco that makes that possible? Is there something about the people, the, the atmosphere of this city, I wonder, Val? Oh, yeah, absolutely, because I'm privileged to be in between Little Italy and Chinatown. And every time I go out, I hear foreign languages. So I'm always looking, looking, looking as much as I can and listening, listening, listening. So in other words, the environment is continually renewing itself and it's all food for us, you know. I mean, everything we we take in through our senses is, you could call it food <laughs> for your brain, for your whatever. And on the hills, I love the hills because on a very short walk, you just you, you see much more than you could in any flat city. I love the hills. What did you think about this place when you when you first struck eyes upon it? This yeah, it was heaven. heaven. Yeah. Heaven on Do you Earth. feel the same? Well, yeah, as close as you can get to heaven. It's almost time for us to leave the city and take to the road. But before we do, we meet Ben Grant from the urban policy and planning think tank Spur. It's his job to know San Francisco and the surrounding area inside out. So we went to meet him for tips on his favorite spots in and around the city. Some of my favorite views of San Francisco really are getting up on top of the hills and looking out and really seeing the city in its context. I love Bernal Hill as adjacent to um, Bernal Heights and Mission District neighborhoods with a wonderful open space on top of it and stairs through the neighborhood that you can climb up to these beautiful vistas on top. The same is true of Twin Peaks and Corona Heights Hill, a series of hills that are kind of nestled in the neighborhoods that are really off the beaten track for for visitors and tourists, but wonderfully explorable and give you that experience of San Francisco at its best. 
there's a kind of joke among architects that San Francisco is a place where some of the world's best architects come to do some of their worst work. <laughs> and I won't name any names, but we're not as big on singular pieces of architecture, although I will say probably the, the greatest single piece of design in the Bay Area is the Golden Gate Bridge which, you know, although it is one of those touristic icons, it is that for a reason. And it is truly one of the most stunning pieces of infrastructure on the planet in one of the most stunning settings on the planet. The chances of coming up with a design worthy of that location were infinitesimal. It is a miracle that that bridge actually is up to the aesthetic challenge of that place, actually makes that place more special. It's a must-see for everyone. It's one of those uh, touristy things that locals love to. The Marin Headlands is, and the open spaces associated with that are really some of the most spectacular landscapes I can imagine, both on their own terms as an encounter with nature, in their relation to the city, that they are so closely accessible, in the, the vistas that they provide not only the natural landscape but back to the city of San Francisco. And also as a piece of San Francisco history at its best, we saved these lands um, from development. Much of, them, uh, much of it was military bases that were potentially going to be privately developed, including a, a, a city of 30,000 people that was planned for the Marin Headlands. So you can go there today and contemplate the, some of the great success stories of Bay Area conservation in the Marin Headlands. Well, if Ben thinks the Marin Headlands are the place to go, who are we to argue? The car's charged up and we're ready to drive. After an early start, we take California State Route 1 over the Golden Gate Bridge and the fog lies low over Irving Morrow's mile and a half of steel. Oh, did we mention that the fog has a name too? It's such a part of the place that the locals call it Car. From the Golden Gate Bridge, you can see all of San Francisco. While up close, the city has a few things to work on, you can't fault it for its views. You can see Alcatraz and Treasure Island, and if you look the other side, the ocean drops off the edge of the world. It's a funny feeling driving over a structure that you've seen a million times before in films, books, and travel guides. Seems like we're driving through another great American movie. A short drive northwards takes us up a meandering road lined by eucalyptus trees cased in lycritite camouflage bark. Wind down your windows and take in the scent. Along this drive, we'll pass Muir Woods, where you'll find some of the tallest trees in the United States. A short detour will take us to Bolinas, the small reclusive hippie town that likes to keep itself off the beaten track. Will often be waterside, whether that's low-lying lagoons full of seabirds, seals and other fauna, or atop cliffs overlooking the Pacific's mighty rollers. And here we are making like Caspar David Friedrich, looking out on Muir Point across to the Pacific, the misty Pacific that looks like a Hiroshi Sugimoto photograph, looking over a boatless sea full of birds, looking down over gorse and heather, it's something like the Jurassic Coast, only a little bit more dramatic. And down to the west, amazing houses, timber-framed, shingled in a hundred different styles, cascading down to the sea. Some pretty amazing vantage points and some fairly decent real estate. We took a left fork off the road to see the view that John Muir presumably liked so much. 
Back on the road, we roll a little further up the coast to reach our final destination for this trip, Hog Island Oyster Farm. This little gem in Tamales Bay was founded by locals John Finger and Terry Sawyer in the early 1980s. Since then, they've grown the farm to be one of the leading oyster providers in California and have also become experts on the land and sea around them. We meet John's son, Zane, who was born on the farm and is now the manager, and his colleague, Garrett Hamner, who gives me a lesson in shucking. So we're going to do a little shucking here. Have you shucked before? Yeah, I kind of still got most of my left hand. Right. <laughs> so there's, there's several ways to shuck oysters. With the Pacific Oyster, because it's more teardrop shaped, it's easier to go in through the hinge. Should we try it? Yeah. Okay. Uh, do you recommend the gloves? Glove, I would highly recommend. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, my name is Zane Finger. I'm the farm manager here at Hog Island Oyster Company. Perfect. And uh, how long have you been here? I've been here full time for about nine years now. Did you shuck in your sleep? I used to. I used to shuck a lot more oysters. I, I actually don't shuck too many oysters now. There's a lot of people here that are a lot a lot better than I am. So, But I can still do it with my eyes closed. So, And we're going to take a walk down to the water side, water's edge. I guess we're in the lagoon here, right? This is, so this is a, where we are. It's a bay. So the bay is about a mile wide by about 15 miles long. Tamales Bay is created by the San Andreas Fault. We're standing on one tectonic plate here and you can look over across the bay there and that's a different tectonic plate. So the fault line runs right down the middle of the bay. You're obviously a, a, a connoisseur of the, the oysters themselves, but actually you kind of have to start by being a connoisseur of the water in a way. Yeah. I guess you can tell what's going on under the water from, from the color of it, the way the sun's playing on the surface of it. Maybe. Yeah, a little bit. And, and then a lot of it is just knowing the seasons, know how to, knowing how the oysters affect to the different seasons. And then we have several samples that we do where we're constantly doing plankton toes, where we're towing this really fine net through the water to see what kind of algae is in the water, how much of it there is. Um, we're constantly testing salinity, temperature, pH, all those things, which also affect the, the growth and health of the oysters. So it's a funny thing. People feel that if you're an environmentalist, for example, that's your trade or a scientist or, or a natural historian or something, then you're looking out for this stuff. But actually, you're doing kind of a service. You're, you, you are on the front line of knowing what the quality of the water is like, yeah. the quality of the flora and fauna that grow around it, right? Yeah, and I, I really believe a lot of farmers are really the true conservationists, you know, because you can get an environmentalist out here and they'll be able to look at stuff. They'll be able to, to tell things. They'll be able to to probably help the environment a lot. My livelihood, my mortgage payment, my child eating depends on how healthy this water is. So I'm gonna do everything I can to try to keep this bay as healthy as I can. I think farmers are really the ones who are conserving the land and really coming up with, with all these cool ideas to help the environment. And You've seen it move to larger scale farms in the Midwest and stuff as well, where they're starting to rotate crops in a certain way and and things like that. Do you grow up around here? Is this in your, is the landscape at least, if not the trade in your blood, Zane? So the landscape and the trade are in, in my blood. My father founded the place 35 years ago with a couple other guys. Public restrooms over there, you can see around the corner. That was my bedroom growing up. So they weren't restrooms then, there was actually a bed in there and stuff, but so. I was gonna get a hard luck story there. <laughs> Yep, and so you're going to put the pointy end towards you and then the fan way away from you. Uh, exactly. And you're going to take where the end is and 
the shells meet there. That's where the hinge is. And so the knife is going to go in there and you're going to push down slightly and wiggle with your wrist while applying pressure. And you'll feel it slide between the two shells. There you go. Yeah. Once it in, you don't want to push it all the way through. You're going to keep it kind of out to the side uh-huh. and you're going to twist the blade while pushing up. So it will actually twist and push up. Great. And then run the blade up the right-hand corner where the adductor muscle is, and you sever the adductor muscle. Okay. Nice. We're in. Beautiful. And then it will slide right into your mouth. Perfect. But how about a little bit of lemon there? Great. There we go. That is delicious. Amazing. Mm. Barbecued. We do a lot of barbecued oysters here, um, or baked oysters. I think really, too kind of like you said to appreciate the oyster it's got to be raw and i think it's got to be naked with no sauce on it you know so we grow five different species of oysters here in this bay and to sit down and try those different five side by side you know you really got to do it raw and you got to do it with no sauce on it and then you can really appreciate how the different ones taste different and stuff like that and just finally there's obviously such it's so tied up it must be wonderful to be part of an industry, part of an agriculture that is so bound up in the health of the sea, actually, that you can, you can tell if you're happy, the seas are happy, or if you're, if you're kind of being able to make some money out of it and doing your thing, then that, that is a sign of the prosperity of the ocean itself. Yeah, definitely. And, and I think that that kind of ties into everything we do. I mean, it ties into our work life, but most of the people that, that work here, especially the people that work on the farm, just have, I guess, a special affinity or special place in their heart for the ocean half the guys that work for me here on the farm are out here on their days off fishing you know so like they're coming on their days off to the place they work the water the oysters the the crustiness of those shells does something to the hands right have you have you got like a tried and tested moisturizing regime is that let's feel the hands let's feel oh man they're like salt they're amazing it's hugely soft it's the salt water and that I don't. You're good, good for a massage as well. Yeah, and that I, <laughs> and that I don't work as hard as I used to. So. <laughs> That's why they're so soft. He's the boss now. And that brings us to the end of our up coast, down city, northern Californian trip. And what a beautiful one it's been. We started on a grey and moody morning looking for sea life from the top of the cliffs, and ended on a bright and sunny shoreline in Marin County, eating oysters. The journey out of San Francisco is enough to make you want to move there. Maybe next time. Next month on The Road Ahead, we'll be heading to Paris for an urban exploration of design and architecture, and we'll take in the views from the winding road between Chiang Mai to Pai over in Thailand. Plus, we'll be revealing a brand new fiction piece tailor-made to accompany your next journey. The Road Ahead is made in association with Audi, and you too can soon go for an adventure in the all-electric Audi e-tron. The series producer is Holly Fisher, and the executive producer is Tom Edwards. This episode has been produced and edited by Holly Fisher and Kieran Banerjee, and I've been Robert Bounds. Until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>